Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and today we are very excited to have on the other side of the mic, Chris Perkins, president at CoinFund, a native similar to myself of Morris County, New Jersey. And we had some news out of Austin, but before we dive into that and more, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. This show is sponsored in part by CleanSpark, America's Bitcoin miner. With CleanSpark, you can feel good about investing in the Bitcoin ecosystem because CleanSpark uses low-carbon energy for their Bitcoin mining data centers and is always optimizing their operations to increase energy efficiency and reduce e-waste, all while partnering with the communities they operate in. If you want to support the future of Bitcoin while also supporting the environment, visit www.cleanspark.com to learn more about the CleanSpark way. Chris, a lot of stuff going on at the firm. You guys are not just at the forefront of digital assets, but at the forefront of advocating for this space across Wall Street and Washington. And now we're doing indexes, I guess. Walk us through everything that's happening. Yeah, sure, Frank. Always good to see you. Always great to speak to a fellow Morris County native and, may I say, Italian as well. People don't realize that about my last name. So, you know, I come from a, a background in fixed income. I ran a few businesses back in traditional finance, spent a lot of time in the interest rate space and the derivative space. And, you know, we're always thinking about innovations and we were pretty excited about proof of stake. Ethereum's migration to proof of stake back in September. And we were sitting on a call one day and we said, wow, the transition to proof of stake, you know, we're gonna have this really interesting situation now. And people have talked about it for a while. But we actually were thinking about it back in August or before that. Well, now validators are going to be receiving rewards every day, right? And gosh, if you could capture that rate and if you could standardize that rate, it could unlock an incredible amount of innovation. If you look at interest rates today in traditional finance, it's a $500 trillion notional market. And that's just interest rate swaps alone, right? And as you start like unpacking in your head, and one of the things we try to do at CoinFund is look at this convergence theme. Like, how do you bring the best of crypto together with the best in finance? Well, like, gosh, what an incredible rate that we now have. And we can see, if you think back to LIBOR, gosh, what kind of problems did we have with LIBOR? You had a bunch of traders manipulating it for many, many years for their own trading book. You know, this is no surprise. Well, this is the best of crypto because it's observable, it's transparent, it's replicable, very difficult to manipulate. So, you know, then it became a big computer science challenge and we said, you know, how do we extract? And essentially what we wanted to do was look at the new emissions that the Ethereum protocol emits to validators plus transaction fees. And transaction fees include all MEV, anything that's on-chain we capture. And that's what gets really, really interesting as you start unpacking the rate. Oh, and by the way, Frank, we call the rate Caesar, which is an honor to, you know, your heritage and mine, but it stands for the composite ether staking rate. And so um, CESR is Caesar. So long story short, it was then a big data problem. How do we track across these 500,000 validators, the emissions that they receive every day, plus the transaction fees? And then how do we take that and annualize that rate and the fact of the matter is, is that we had all this sorted ahead of the merge and we were ready to go live, but we had to find a partner. You know, we're just a simple 
registered investment advisor that, that knows a little bit about crypto with some really, really good engineers, people like Christian Murray. But, you know, we needed to find a partner for distribution because like, we think it would be so good for crypto. You know, again, we believe in this convergence theme and we wanted to do it grand and we wanted to do it loud and we wanted to do it right so that the traditional folks could understand what a rate like this could do. You know, I'm an old Navy guy. Think of it like containerized shipping, right? If you can standardize a primitive like this, you can build all different types of applications, futures, swaps. Yes, walk us through how this serves as a foundation, like a very clear, robust benchmark for Ethereum. What does this mean for the broader sort of institutionalization of this market? And what can we build on top of it? Yeah, so Caesar is not a security. And I can say that pretty safely, having operated in this space for a very long time. It's a rate. Right. And if you look in the context of how rates are contemplated, they're contemplated as commodities under regulation. And we can get into that further. But it's a fundamental primitive. I look at it like a SOFR, which was one of the replacement rates for LIBOR. It's like a LIBOR, but it's a much better LIBOR in its construction because it's not based on user submissions. It's based mm. on observable on-chain activity, right? On-chain data. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's a big data exercise. So if you have standardization around that rate, and you snap it, and we will be releasing it every day. We ended up, and there's a bit of a story I can tell you if you want around how we arrived at Coindesk Indices. Great team, great capabilities. Long story short, we uh, we scanned the world, right? We tried to find the best index providers out there, and we couldn't find one that could deliver a seven-day rate. It was a, hey, sorry, five days, ancient technology. And frankly, as crypto natives, you know, I don't know how... We would be perceived if we were comfortable with a, a five-day rate. But we found the Coindesk Indices team, excellent people, excellent capabilities. You know, we're going to start producing it, released every day, New York at 4 p.m. But over time, you know, we'll, we'll release it on the hour as we move forward. But, you know, getting back to the practical applications, once you have the standardized rate comes out at, at a similar time, you can start building many products off of it. You can build futures, and I'm an old futures guy, right? Futures are used to hedge or they're used to speculate. And I'll get into some of the behavior that we've seen in a second. But, you know, if you have a view on how that rate will increase or you're a staker and you want to hedge your rate, you can do that. Because it's an average rate, certain folks tend to outperform that average. Like the professional stakers will tend to outperform all the average 500,000 folks. And the thing that we've observed, which is absolutely fascinating, is because you have emissions plus transaction fees, guess what happens? When the network, when Ethereum gets busy, you see transaction fees increase, okay? And what we've observed since we started running this back before the merge is that on-chain activity in Ethereum is a flight to safety. So mm. when did we see the biggest spikes? We saw a material spike with FTX. But the biggest spike that we've seen to date, and Caesar jumped to about 7.5%, was the recent banking crisis around SVB. And so the behavior that you're seeing is that as there's counterparty risk in the system, people move stuff on chain, the network gets busy, transaction fees go up, and there's this volatility aspect to the rate. Just for someone maybe listening who wants to take a look at this and extract some sort of alpha, what can one glean from the way in which Caesar is performing that can give a sense of the market from a predictability perspective, like if it's doing X, shall we expect Y? What can we get a sense of from that? 
It's a great question, Frank. So there's two components of the rate. The first is emissions, and the second is transaction fees. As more validators come online, generally speaking, the emissions go down because it's an average or spread across those validators. So the more validators, you'll see a slight decrease in the average return to those validators because the emissions are spread out. But the biggest, most volatile component of the rate are transaction fees, right? Transaction fees paid to those validators. And so what we've seen, the behavior thus far, is obviously correlated to market activity, on-chain activity. And during periods of stress, when people want to get out of those exchanges and they move their stuff into on-chain activity, it balloons. And so it's almost, there's a volatility component here, a material volatility component here that's the basis of those transaction fees. And we're seeing the rate print between about four and about seven and a half percent. As you look at the graph, and I've tweeted about it, we're going to be publishing a lot about it here soon. It looks like a heartbeat in a way we call it the heartbeat of crypto. And so with those use cases in mind, to the extent that you're seeing a lot of stress in the system in the future, you can obviously take a position to hedge that risk. Ultimately, what we think is going to happen with this rate, to the extent that we're able to generate liquidity and focus, the first thing that we're hoping to see develop is something called the forward curve, right? And that's where people will start projecting the rate into the future. That will allow you to unlock all different types of derivatives that we see in traditional finance. I think this is the most key aspect here, is unlocking that forward curve and what it means for the robustness of sort of the market for Ethereum, like an unlock that brings it to the next level of maturation. And the other thing, the one product that I have in the back of my mind as an old rates guy is something called the basis swap. And that's a floating for floating swap. So think of it as a rates on board. What if you were to trade SOFR or Fed funds versus you know the Ethereum? We don't call it the risk-free rate because that has all different types of connotations. But think about a basis well, swap. Cards, it'll just be so much more fun. Like we're going to be able to talk about the market in the same way as you know, if you're coming on a podcast to talk about macro, you're going to get to talk about forward guidance, forward expectations, and, you know, all the different terms. Totally. It fits so neatly. The other thing I love about it is it's synthetic. A lot of banks and traditional players, they can't put crypto on their balance sheet, right? And you've seen a ton of indexes that reference crypto prices. You know, this is actually, it's a derivative of that. It's, it's the rate. It's the, the Ether staking rate. So I think it fits really neatly into the existing framework of a lot of traditional players because they consume and they understand all different types of rates and they have certain capital efficiencies that they can look at because they apply those rates, which is really fascinating. You know, there's a whole other way that you can unlock this rate. Think about how many products do we have now denominated in Ethereum? You know, many, many NFTs are, yes, we're familiar with the Solana ecosystem as well, but now you have a discount rate. As you look at forward valuations, you know, you need that interest rate essentially to discount and to project the forward valuation for any kind of product that's denominated in ETH. So again, we think that there are infinite opportunities to compose, right? The other thing I like about it is it's primitive, right? Here's a primitive, mm-hmm. we'll standardize it, we'll print it. Everyone come, let's see what we can build on top of it. And like, this can be a standardized use case that gets us super exciting. And like, we're having great pickup. We had Franklin Templeton. You know, I just, we just came back from consensus. They had quite a showing there. They were able to join us on stage for the announcement. They think it's really cool. We're partnering with them. They were part of our press release. Because like, when you talk to traditional players, the light bulb goes on immediately. And so it's been a, a really good reception to date. And the Coindesk Indices team, like I said, 
the pros. They've been in the space, traditional index space for decades, and uh, we're excited to partner with them. Here's a message from our sponsor, CleanSpark. CleanSpark is a NASDAQ-listed company that mines Bitcoin. Basically, they build and operate data centers with tens of thousands of computers that help secure Bitcoin, making it more reliable and secure for anybody, anywhere to use. These computers require a lot of energy, but that's why CleanSpark predominantly uses low-carbon energy to power their machines. But that's not all. They care about the communities where their data centers are located. They create jobs, donate to schools and community centers, and revitalize aging electricity grids in rural parts of America. They aren't just a Bitcoin miner. They're one of the most efficient and sustainable Bitcoin miners in America. Visit www.cleanspark.com to learn more. So how does this fit into, you know, CoinFund's broader strategy? You know, most people think of you guys as a venture capital firm. How does this sort of illustrate the broader ambitions? One of the things that we try to do is we're big believers in Web3. And as we start, you know, partnering with various projects that are building and composing, we want to have Web3 be successful. And we look at projects that are, you know, everything from, you know, financial-based projects, CFI, DeFi, et cetera. We're hopeful that like something like, like to me, this was a missing link, right? It was a missing part of the financial ecosystem that once we have standardized, people will be able to build. So like, I think it's just generally healthy for the Ethereum ecosystem and hopefully beyond. We're excited to extend this to other proof of stake layer ones because we think having an ecosystem with a rich derivatives and a rich rates environment, we think it's just going to help fuel the rest of the ecosystem. And again, it's a primitive. We hope that people build on it. We would love to see DeFi build on it. We would love to see CFI build on it. How do you get it to that next level where, you know, you see tradable products on CME that are tied to this thing? One of our biggest thesis at CoinFund is the convergence theme, right? We ultimately believe that we want this space to be regulated. We want it to be principally regulated based on principles, obviously. And then ultimately, mm-hmm. we think that'll force a convergence. And, it, and someday we're not going to talk about crypto and TradFi. We're just going to talk about FI or, or whatever. But, you know, ultimately, we could expect that a, you know, CME or other exchange out there licenses the product, helps us to facilitate a curve. And then you have those on-screen transactions. To me, it makes a ton of sense. It'll be beneficial. How far do you think we are from that? Hopefully not that far. I I would expect, you know, people that I deal with in the space, the market makers, the stakers, they would like to use a rate like this. And, you know, we're hopeful. I think what we've done, and you've seen people publish things, but this is designed to be an institutional rate with a benchmark administrator and a calculation agent following IOSCO principles, right? Like after the LIBOR issues, you, you have to really industrialize these types of rates and follow these various principles on you know, governance and resiliency and accuracy. And so like we're trying you know, not take away from what anyone else has done, but really to industrialize this so that it's investable and consumable. And that's really where our partners at Coindesk Indices come in. Makes sense. I think you could be a game changer. Walk us through your sense of the regulatory environment right now. You see a lot of exchanges trying to move offshore. Coinbase announced today the perpetual exchange that'll be uh, Bermuda licensed and under that Bermudian framework. Derivatives, are they dead here in the U.S. to a certain extent outside of our good friends at the CME? Yeah, great question, Frank. It's uh, something that I've been grappling with forever. And I think a lack of derivatives markets that are accessible to Americans is really set back 
not only our country, but, you know, people who can't hedge. Like that's what derivatives are, you know, were primarily designed to do in the beginning in the ag space. So it's really hard to have products that allow you to manage your risk when we don't have scalable capabilities, aside from very limited products. What's my sense of the regulatory environment? So there are two ways that you can approach regulation. You can be very proactive. You can be very nuanced. You can recognize a new technology and say, you know what? This is an opportunity to drive job growth, to facilitate, to really catalyze my economy. And you can create specific nuance-based regulation and law that really makes that happen. Or you can say, in the absence of that, you know, I've got this existing infrastructure. Let's just try to see if we can make it work and we'll eventually figure it out because our old system works fine. We can just jam it in there and we'll be okay. What we're seeing around the world is people taking that former approach. Micah just came out, you know, it's not perfect, but you know what? It's clear and it's a nuanced approach to address the technology and put a framework around it so that people can build. And really, that's what our entrepreneurs want. They want clarity so that they can build. As a result, the UK, whose economy is, you know, has an incredible part of it's based on financial services, is like, whoa, we have to come up now with nuanced, thoughtful approach as well, you know, particularly in the context yeah. of Brexit. Hong Kong, you go around the world. Hong Kong is waking mm-hmm. up. We just sent the team out there. And you actually see party officials showing up at conferences trying to catalyze things. It seems like, you know, that they're trying to, to put forth a nuanced approach as well. And I'd argue that none of these are perfect, but at least there's an approach at productivity, nuance, and trying to galvanize this technology. And that makes Singapore say, wait a second, Hong Kong is moving forward. We got to move forward. And then you look at places like the UAE, you know, whether it's ADGM, or others. I just interviewed the premier of Bermuda the other day. It seems like many jurisdictions around the world are trying to be proactive. They're trying to say, listen, we're going to get in front of this. The problem that we have in the States is that obviously we're still in this hangover period with FTX. Well, how do we ensure that proactive doesn't manifest or translate into, and I say this with all the sort of ignorance of someone who hasn't dug deep into the Bahamian framework, but some skeptics might think, how do we make sure that or ensure that favorable doesn't necessarily mean do whatever you want? So I've been around regulation for a long time. The right regulation is always principles-based. And the way it works in other countries is that the regulation, if it's the same principles, will always be consistent, not identical. It's never going to be identical. But which would be the best way forward, would do, and we published a white paper recently, Global passporting, substitute compliance is the regulatory term for it as well. You know, what jurisdictions should do, crypto is global, they should be able to recognize the principles of other jurisdictions and then say, okay, you know what, that meets the same principles, consistent, not identical, we'll recognize that licensing, right? And there's precedent for that, but that's the ideal way forward where, you know, there's this race to the top, essentially, where the principles are followed and people recognize each other. And if you don't get recognized, you know, then maybe you need to change so that you can be part of that global liquidity. That's the ideal principles-based outcome. But, you know, in the States right now, and I'm very sympathetic to regulators, when we were going through the global financial crisis, there was a law. It was called Dodd-Frank. And the regulators were specifically tasked to say, hey, do this, 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 and this, go. And by the way, that law in the U.S. was like five years ahead of what came out in Europe. And so we're kind of in a different situation right now where we have much more clear policy in Europe, less so in the U.S., but the problem is we don't have that law now. And that leaves regulators in a tough spot because they're left having to follow, you know, 
legacy principles and, and legacy rulemaking. And it's just hard because, you know, my personal belief having operating in the space every single day for the last few years is that, you know, this is new technology. It unlocks new opportunities that weren't really contemplated by decades old rules. So, you know, for me in the United States, it really starts with legislation. We're super hopeful that maybe stable coins will come out in the near future. You never know. It's very difficult, it seems, with these governments, particularly as we go into election season. But you try to stay engaged. You try to educate. You know, I, I was recently named to the CFTC's Global Markets Advisory Committee. So it's great. They asked for us to present and they asked for our feedback. They also asked to stand up a digital asset subcommittee. So they're interested. They're engaged. And to me, that's the only way forward is to try to engage as much as possible, be constructive, not antagonistic, and just keep working. What are some of the hot button questions that exist on the Hill right now? Yeah, so on the Hill right now, I think one of the big topics, and there was an interesting panel about it in the House, is really stable coins. Stable coins are an incredible opportunity, I think, for so many reasons. And they're obvious utility, right? You can reduce remittances by 80% according to Uniswap. It could perpetuate the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. You know, if you're in Argentina, you know, what would you rather have, Bitcoin or stablecoin or the local currency? I think a stablecoin factors nicely into those choices. So stablecoins, I think, are very much a topic on the Hill. We recently saw some pressure, obviously, with the banking crisis. And like, in, in my mind, the issue was around like the banks themselves. And so I think that needs to get sorted. And I think that's a wonderful first step because of the utility that it provides. Then, of course, beyond that, you know, there's a lot of questions as you look at our legacy system. If you're looking at legacy processes, what's a commodity? What's a security? And the one thing that I'm going to try to continue to do until I'm blue in the face is to work with regulators to try to put together some empirical measures of what decentralized means. He's never going to tell us, Chris. No, I hear you. Look, my personal belief is that a lot of this will end up in the courts. There'll be a new equilibrium, and that's how we'll gain certainty in the absence of that legislation. But in the interim, you know, for me, it's just about engaging and trying to do my role over and over again until we make a breakthrough. Well, Chris... We appreciate your tenacity and your efforts, and we appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you so much, sir. Where can people learn more about where you're working on, what you're doing? Where can we find you? Yes, sir. Just on Twitter is the best, PerkinsCR97. Thank you so much, Frank. Perfect. Chris, thanks so much for joining the show. And ladies and gentlemen, The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.